Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down box or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. In the Gregorian calendar, in many of the Eastern churches, this day, this evening, begins the season of Lent. In the Western church, Lent will begin in a few days from now, which would be on Ash Wednesday. But in the many Eastern churches, it is Sunday evening, actually Sunday before Ash Wednesday, that actually begins the Byzantine reckoning of Lent. One of the reasons for this is that it's a straight count of 40 days. It doesn't exclude the weekends. And so a straight 40 days goes from this Sunday all the way to Palm Sunday. Great Week Holy becomes a special fast in and of itself. That's why it's called Great Week or the Week of the Bridegroom. But Lent in the Eastern Church goes from this Sunday evening until Palm Sunday. In other words, it actually stops a week before Easter. In the Latin Rite Church, it extends into Holy Week. It's also a day in which we celebrate in this particular day, February 14th, we celebrate the feast of the death of St. Cyril. He was the apostle to the Slavs. He and his brother Methodius evangelized the Slavic people, in particular, people of my own heritage, the people in the area that is now known as Central Europe, where Hungary, Slovakia, Ukraine come together in that Carpathian mountain region, which is the exact epicenter of Europe. And in that region, two Greek Byzantine brothers who had Slavic heritage entered into the Slavic lands and brought the Christian faith in the form of the Byzantine church, the Byzantine rite, to the people of the Slavic lands. In fact, you recall at the time the people of Rus, this was in the 9th century in 865 AD. And one of the things they did was they brought the liturgy of the Byzantine church and they put it into the vernacular of the people. In other words, they allowed the people to express and worship in their Slavic tongue. At that time, the people did not have a written language and Cyril was a great scholar. He was a monk. His brother eventually became a bishop. Cyril actually developed an alphabet based on the Greek characters, an alphabet which we call today the Cyrillic alphabet. And that forms the letters that then were used to form the written Slavonic language. Today we call it the Old Slavonic or the Church Slavonic. It's almost like an ancient Russian, so to speak. In other words, it's almost what to the Slavic languages Latin is to all the Romance languages or what Old English is to the English language. It's the, sort of the mother tongue of the Slavic languages, but now it's basically preserved in the church. It's kind of like what Latin is to the Latin Rite Church. 
For us, in the Byzantine Church of the Ruthenian jurisdiction, and in many other jurisdictions, such as the Russian, Ukrainian, this is our mother tongue of our liturgy. Spoken by the Slavic people centuries ago, but turned into an alphabet, a written language, by this great St. Cyril, who died in Rome and was buried there in St. Clement's. I had the opportunity to visit his grave on his feast day, in fact, when I was studying in Rome. So that was really quite a special experience for me as one of the progeny, the spiritual progeny of this great St. Cyril. So St. Cyril Methodius, brothers, apostles of Slavs, in particular, we celebrate the death of St. Cyril this day. Also, of course, it's Valentine's Day. And of course, that was actually named after a saint. Lots of facts, lots of myths at the same time surround that saint. And it's, of course, the saint of love. It's rather providential because we've entered a period of the great fast of Lent, both East and West, eventually. We'll be celebrating it together. We've entered that period in which actually the goal of it is to, in fact, grow in love, to grow in greater charity. We can only do that by an increase in prayer and sacrifice in fasting. In other words, we sort of empty ourselves, we deny ourselves, say no to ourselves, we sort of break the tyranny of our passions, of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, so as to rise to our true selves, our best selves, our charitable selves. In other words, to become more and more perfectly the image of Jesus Christ. That's the point of Lent. And ultimately, it's to become a person who loves as Christ loved. So it's rather providential that St. Valentine's Day is on this day, at least this day in terms of the Eastern Church, because this is when we actually enter into Lent. And that happens at the evening service called the Great Forgiveness Vespers, or the Expulsion of Adam from Paradise. It's a wonderfully moving service that enters us into this whole spirit of forgiveness that opens us to charity. And that's what begins our Lent. And the Eastern churches, we don't begin Lent with ashes, as they do in the Latin Rite Church. Rather, we begin with an anointing or the embrace of forgiveness, which happens at this Forgiveness Vesper service on Sunday evening. So Sunday evening begins the next day. So actually, the first day of Lent is Monday, but Monday begins in the liturgical calendar, the liturgical day. The Monday would actually begin on Sunday evening. In other words, the day goes from evening to evening, sunset to sunset, as it were. But speaking of love, we have another love letter from a listener. It's a very special one, actually. I'll read you just part of it. This is from Deacon Malachi from San Francisco, California. And he writes this. Thank you so much for your radio program, Light of the East. I am an Ethiopian Orthodox deacon with an outreach to Rastafarians. I was homesick with a cold and missed church one Sunday, and I heard your broadcast. And I've been tuning into it ever since as much as possible. A radio program is so needed today as a bridge-building tool between not only Eastern and Western Catholics, but also Catholics and Orthodox as well. I also love your choir and hope to buy their music as soon as I can. I grew up in a small Ethiopian Orthodox mission parish on the island of Martinique. Please pray for me as I remember your blessed work. Love in Christ, Deacon Malachi. Thank you, Deacon. That was a very heartwarming letter. I was very touched to receive your letter. I just read part of it here. But also, I was very touched to receive, along with that letter, a beautiful icon that I assume that it was, uh, I believe it was drawn by you. It's an icon, really, of the nativity of Joseph and Mary with the Christ child. And it's done in that very special Ethiopian style, very similar to the Coptic Orthodox iconography style. It's uh, very stylized. It might be what we call a kind of a, has a sort of a primitive character to it. And primitive is not a demeaning term. It means a certain quality of art. And it's a, a very ancient 
and a primitive style, as I mentioned, but it's iconography uh, used often in the churches of North Africa, very distinctive. I knew in a minute that when I received this from you that it was in that style of the North African iconography. So I really want to thank you for that. I was very touched by it, Deacon, and also by your letter. I pray for your health and well-being, and thank you so much for tuning in. And you're especially important to us because you are a deacon of the Orthodox Church. We welcome very much our Orthodox listeners. Very, very happy to have Orthodox listeners here. Many of you do write to us, and we're glad that we can be of some edification and service to you as well, because obviously this program is about the riches of the East, both both Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, along with the riches of the West. But primarily we present the riches of the Eastern Church, Orthodox and Catholic, on this program. And as Deacon said, hopefully... It helps to work towards the cause of unity between everyone, between Eastern Catholics and Orthodox, and between Orthodox and Catholics. That is our hope. That is our message. Our vision here of, at Light of the East is to be a tool of reunion, as John Paul II said so well in his document, Orientali Lumen, Light of the East. Learn about the Eastern churches so as to be an instrument of unity between all of the churches. Speaking once again even more of love on this day of St. Valentine's Day, the beginning of Lent and of the death of St. Cyril, we also have something that might be good for those of you who are married to encourage and help your married love. This is a retreat called Tabor Life Presents Married Life, as you always dreamed it could be. This retreat is for married couples, and I'll be one of the speakers, the main presenters, along with our team at Tabor Life Institute. You can find out about it by going to taborlife.org or call us at 708-645-0762. This retreat takes place on the shores of Lake Michigan in South Haven, Michigan, a very beautiful, quaint little town. You'll be staying at the Carriage House, very romantic, Carriage House at the Harbor Bed. So why not consider it? It'd be a great Lenten thing to do, actually. And also, another little thing you can do for Lent is you can visit our Chancery Center in Parma, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland, because we have an exhibit there running from February 1st through March 5th. It's an exhibit of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Proud to say my own bishop is on the committee to canonize Bishop Sheen. And it's got some of his artifacts there, especially things that he used when he functioned by ritually as a Byzantine bishop. That's right. Bishop Sheen functioned in both rites. And there are some vestments that he wore and other kinds of artifacts at this exhibit. If you want to find out more information about it or arrange a tour, go to parma.org. That's parma.org. Here is something you should know about, especially if you're in the Detroit, Michigan area. Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Parish of Livonia, Michigan, will be hosting a special presentation on the Holy Shroud of Turin on Sunday, February 21st at 3 p.m., featuring renowned expert Russ Breolt. These are some of my good friends up there in Livonia, Michigan. Father Joseph Marquis, who's the pastor of Sacred Heart Parish, and also our good friend and supporter, Deacon Lawrence Hendricks. They'll all be there. So consider this, the special presentation on the Holy Shroud of Turin, Sunday, February 21st at 3 p.m., featuring renowned expert Russ Brayalt. You can get more information by calling 734-522-3166, 734-522-3166. And again, that's Sacred Heart Byzantine Catholic Church, which is located at 29125 West Six Mile Road, which is east of Middle Belt in Livonia, Michigan. I also want to greet my friends at the Brotherhood of St. John, that community down near Peoria, Illinois. 
It's actually in Princeville, Illinois, near Peoria, Illinois, which is in kind of the center of the state of Illinois. Visited them recently, and the monks there and the brothers in the community had a lot of great questions for me while I was there. I gave a little talk in the Eastern churches, and we celebrated divine liturgy together. And I'm going to entertain some of those questions on our program today because the questions they had are questions that are commonly brought to my attention. And so we're going to deal with them here today on our program on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's Reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. In the 1950s and 60s, Families gathered around their televisions when this theme came on to herald the start of one of the most watched programs of the era, Life is Worth Living, with Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Now it's difficult to believe that they were Irish angels and not in a fight, but that is the fact. Truly the first tele-evangelist, Bishop Sheen taught the gospel with wit, grace, and intellect, and an uncanny sense of how to transcend the medium and touch the viewer. To celebrate the life and legacy of Archbishop Sheen through his service in the Roman and Byzantine Catholic churches, see the multimedia exhibit. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, a voice crying out on the airwaves, Monday, February 1st through Friday, March 5th, at the Bishop Emil J. Mahalik Byzantine Catholic Cultural Center, 1900 Carlton Road, Parma, Ohio. For complete information, go to parma.org. That's parma.org. God love. I am Father Thomas Loya, and I invite you to Tabor Life Presents Married Life, as you always dreamed it could be, a retreat for married couples. Friday through Sunday, March 12th through the 14th, at the Scenic Carriage House at the Harbor Bed and Breakfast on the shores of Lake Michigan in the charming town of South Haven, Michigan. You may ask, how can this retreat help my marriage? This retreat will be an immersion into the why behind our being a man and a woman, and therefore what our legitimate needs are as man and woman. And this and only this is what leads us to that intimacy that all couples ultimately desire. Married life as you always dreamed it could be. In this incredibly romantic setting, your $500 investment per couple includes champagne breakfast, meals, except dinner on Saturday, snacks, and the presentation. For complete details and registration, go to TaborLife.org. That's T-A-B-O-R Life.org. Married life as you always dreamed it could be. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You've heard and seen the news. It's just stunning to get in a helicopter and fly over Port-au-Prince. Everywhere you look, such destruction, such devastation. As the world watches the events in Haiti, you may ask, what can I do to help? As Catholics, the first thing to do is to pray for the victims. The second thing that you can do is to go to Catholic Relief Services at crs.org. That's crs.org and make a donation or call Catholic Relief Services at 800-736-3467. That's 800-736-3467. Please help now. Welcome back to Lay of the East. And just before we get to some of the questions I was asked by some good 
monks and community members at the community of St. John in Illinois. I just want to update you on a little bit of a news item. And I got this from the Associated Press. It says, Pope decries aversion to Christians. Pope Benedict XVI decried Monday what he called growing aversion to the Christian faith in the world. The pontiff is homily in a Rome basilica didn't single any geographic area, but his worry about the plight of the Christian minority in the Middle East will shape discussions Mideast bishops will hold later this year at a special meeting at the Vatican. The Vatican has repeatedly expressed concern about the flight of Christians from the overwhelmingly Muslim region, as well as about the religious discrimination that many of those who remain are suffering. Benedict urged Christians to invigorate efforts to spread their faith's message despite what he described as the unfriendly climate to Christianity in parts of the world. In a world marked by religious indifference, even by a growing aversion toward the Christian faith, a new intense activity of evangelization is necessary, the Pope said. So the Pope is concerned, and as we all are, there has been this exodus, as it were, from the Middle East of Christians for quite some time. And Naturally, we're concerned because that is the Holy Lands, the land of Christ, the land of uh, the Bible, and the presence of Christians is diminishing terribly there. So we want to remember these Christians in our prayers, we want to remember the Pope in our prayers, and especially these Middle Eastern bishops who are going to come together, fortunately, that should be pretty providential, and discuss some of their situations uh, with the Holy Father. So again, our prayers are with our Eastern Christian brethren in the homeland, the motherland of Christianity. Okay, now, as promised, on to some of our questions that I was asked by some of the brothers at the Monastery of St. John. And again, I do say hello to them. I send our greetings out if they are listening or able to listen. And also, their questions, as I mentioned, are very similar to questions I often get. So I thought maybe I'd treat one or two of them today. One of those questions, of course, has to do with the phenomenon of married priests in the Eastern churches. And the monks had a lot of interesting questions surrounding this whole issue. So I want to go through this a little bit to kind of give an understanding uh, of a lot of these questions and, and of what this situation really is, you know, what it's like today, where it came from, and so on. First of all, when we talk about married priesthood in the Eastern churches, we're talking about something that is a venerable tradition. It's been around for centuries, since the beginning, since the time of the apostles. It's not something that's new. It's not something that's part of some kind of liberal agenda and so on. It is a venerable tradition in the East. In fact, it's pretty much the norm in most of the countries of origin of the Eastern churches, that is the Middle East and the Central Europe and Russia and so on. Most of these countries, in most of the parishes, at least on the parish level, have pastors who are married men. And what this means is they were ordained after they were married. In other words, as seminarians, they may be open to being married, but they have to be married first along the way or after they complete their seminary studies, and then they are ordained to major orders. In other words, you don't get married after major orders. Major orders means if you become a deacon, a priest, or a bishop, you have to be married prior to that. Of course, a bishop is celibate, but a priest or deacon may be married, but they have to be married prior to their major orders, their ordination to the diaconate or the priesthood. And in the countries of origin, it's important to remember that the structure, the culture, the society, which in many cases was kind of a village type of structure, was actually very supportive and tended to be more part and parcel of the life of the priest and the priest's family. In other words, the villages were, were supportive of the priest's family. The priest's family dwelt among the villagers, dwelt among the other villagers. Uh, he, he was looked upon as being able to relate to them well because he had his own family and wife and so on. So the system in which 
marrying clergy in Eastern churches existed was one that was supportive. It was a less secularized culture. It was a little bit smaller, more intimate type culture, as I mentioned, sort of the village system. And this is a kind of a contrast to the situation we have today in the Western world. This is one of the reasons why the monks and many people ask this question about married clergy for the Eastern churches in the Western world. Basically, the question is, is it happening? Will it work? Can it work? Will it go? And so on. Well, a little more history on this. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, there has been an unbroken tradition of ordaining married men to the priesthood. However, as a result of the reunion with the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, on the part of certain parts of the Eastern Orthodox churches, which later we now know to be the Eastern Catholic churches, of which I am a member, when these Eastern Catholic churches reunited with Rome, one of the problems that arose from the reunions was the question of having a married clergy. And to make a long kind of history short, what happened was in the early part of the 20th century in America, in North America, There was enough pressure put upon Rome by the American bishops about this issue of married priests in the Eastern churches that Rome actually took an action. They actually made two statements, the final one being a statement called Cum Dada Fueret, which was in 1929, which basically said this, that all priests in the New World, at the time America was referred to as the world, all priests in the New World were to be celibate, which essentially meant the Eastern Catholic churches in America, in the New World, could no longer have married priests. Well, this was a huge shift for the Eastern churches. This was a huge phenomenon, a huge, as it were, blow to them. And it actually caused some of the Eastern Catholics to leave the the Catholic Church and actually go back to Orthodoxy, to the Orthodox churches. In fact, thousands of them went over over this issue. It was kind of a hinge pin issue. It wasn't the only issue, but it was kind of hinge pin, very much like American history with the issue of slavery. Slavery wasn't the total cause or some total of the Civil War, but it was definitely a hinge pin issue. Well, celibacy and married clergy was a hinge pin issue in the early part of the 20th century in the Eastern Catholic churches in North America. Well, what's happened is in later times, in the 1990s, for instance, under Pope John Paul II, Rome said that the Eastern Catholic churches in America could restore their tradition of ordaining married men to the priesthood, but this is how they framed it. They basically said the Eastern Catholic bishops, if they so desire, could ordain married men to the priesthood, but on a case-by-case basis submitted to Rome. Now, that sounds like a kind of a unfair qualification there to the Eastern churches, because it was always our tradition. It should never have been taken away to begin with. But the reason for this clause on a case-by-case basis submitted to Rome, in my understanding, is that Rome realizes, as do even the Eastern bishops realize, that the practice of married clergy has long since been absent from America, from the American scene, both East and West in the church. And the restoration of that has to be done rather diplomatically and judiciously for the good of the whole church. In fact, there are Eastern bishops who perhaps may not return to ordaining married men. It's up to them, and some of them may not. Some of them may. Some already have. But this transition has to be judicious and slow, and with a great deal of patience and insight, has to be done rather carefully, because the situation in America is not the same as in the countries of origin. In other words, The American culture is not in itself knowledgeable or supportive, per se, of the kind of climate or situation 
that is very conducive to a married clergy. Perhaps in time it will be more conducive, or the married clergy phenomena will will do fine in America. But at this time, a transition, we're talking about a transition now, the situation in America is very different than it has been in Europe for centuries. And that situation is one in which, for instance, you don't have priestly families as you did in Europe, where the daughters of priests oftentimes became the wives of priests, or girls that came from priest families in some way or another. Maybe they were grandchildren or daughters or nieces and so on, but they were familiar with having a father, grandfather, uncle, etc. as a family member priest. Well, in America, that's not really the case. Certainly, it's not the case to have a father, your own father, who's a priest, for the most part. There are certain exceptions. So, for girls to grow up with an understanding of what it is to be a priest's wife is something very foreign, by and large, in America. And not any wife will do. You see, this is a very big topic. We're going to have to treat it in successive programs on, on our program here, Light of the East. But I thought I at least would touch on it to some extent based on the fact that many, many people ask me about this question, about the whole phenomenon of married priests in the Eastern Catholic churches in North America in today's time. But as I mentioned, there's a lot more to this. It's one of my favorite subjects, obviously, because I come from a long line of married priests, even though I myself am celibate. And so it's a very important and significant and fascinating issue. I want to thank you for listening to at least this part of our explanation, and we're going to pursue this in other programs here on Light of the East. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.